Hey folks, we'll be off next week to record a special real-time recap episode, but make sure to tune back in on May 18th. Before we get started, I want to point out that these conversations took place over the span of a few months and are not necessarily presented in the order they were recorded. Therefore, we may touch on some, but not all, current events. In addition, when we say women, we mean all women. Although our dialogue often generalizes women into one social group with shared experiences, we want to specifically express our support for women in minorities of race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, etc., and for those using their voices for positive change. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Sarah DeFores. And I'm Victoria Banks. This is The Table, a podcast by and about women in the entertainment industry. Welcome to episode 19, where we have a conversation with CMT's Senior Vice President of Music Strategy, Leslie Fram. So pull up a chair and get nice and comfy because everyone deserves a seat at The, the table. table. Do what you want, work what you got, say what you think and don't let them stop you. Stop you, don't, don't let them stop. Stop you, don't, don't let them stop you. Leslie Fram serves as Senior Vice President of Music Strategy for CMT, overseeing all music integration within the CMT brand, including original programs, CMT.com, and music video airplay across all screens. She's championed new avenues to showcase emerging artists, including the new digital performance-based series, Concrete Country, and most recently, the Next Women of Country campaign designed to showcase the female power voices of country. In addition, Leslie is a co-founder of Change the Conversation, an organization with the mission of raising awareness and creating change so that more female voices will be heard in country music. Before joining CMT in 2011, Fram's career included wild rides in Top 40 Radio in Mobile, Alabama, Alternative Rock at WNNX 99X Atlanta, and most recently at New York Rocker 1019 RXP as program director and morning show co-host with Matt Pinfield. Respected for both her hit intuition and hard-driving passion for music, Fram was the first woman to receive the T.J. Martell Award in recognition of outstanding performance in the music industry in 2000, and was presented with the NARAS Atlanta Chapter Heroes Award for her outstanding contributions to music and the music community. In 2009, she was honored as a Lifetime Achievement inductee in the Georgia Radio Hall of Fame. She currently serves on the board of the Academy of Country Music and has previously served as associate member of NARAS and on its board of governors in both Atlanta and New York. In addition, Fram is an avid philanthropist and spokesperson using her voice to support numerous nonprofits and causes. We are incredibly honored to present a conversation with Leslie Fram. Lovely. Well, guys, we have a really big treat. One of um, our most exciting interviews, I think, to date. We have Leslie Fram in the virtual house. Um, we're so excited to share our night with her. Um, if you don't know who she is, it's a little bit hard to explain in the pre-episode bio. So I think we'll start off with asking um, Leslie if you could give us a little bullet point um, synopsis of your career and kind of where you started out and what you're doing now. Well, first of all, thank you guys. And that, no pressure of that intro. <laughs> But thank you, because you guys are our new friends, and we're all getting to know each other. I, my former career was radio. Radio was my first love. So I spent 20-plus years um, doing a morning show in programming. So for 20 years, I got up at 3 a.m., did a morning show, and then put on my second hat as a program director. And nine years ago, transitioned from radio to television and rock to country. 
and started working at CMT, where I oversee the music and talent team. That was a, that was the quick version. Yeah, <laughs> the three a.m. That boy, did it take a while for you to start sleeping past uh, three o'clock in the morning after you made that transition? You know, it's so funny how some people say I'm a morning person or I'm a night person. I was never a morning person. <laughs> I was the person that loved staying up late at night, listening to music, watching TV or whatever. So it was really, it never came natural to me, honestly. And anyone that you talk to who has ever had to do any kind of a morning shift, it really messes up your whole system. Yeah. It's, it's not easy really now for me to even adjust, but I did it for 20 years and it was a lot of caffeine, I will say that, <laughs> a lot of coffee in the morning. And, uh, but once I was up, I was okay. It sounds like you were born to be a songwriter. We, I always joke with my family. They are all at the, like nine to five, starting at seven thirty sometimes. And I'm like, I don't start till eleven. It's all good. We're good. You're born to be a songwriter. Well, the songwriter shifts it. used to start at about ten o'clock in the morning when I first came to town, and then they moved later and later yeah. and later. So yeah. Well, it's funny because you know in radio we used to ask artists to do our morning show, so artists hated coming in at six a.m. or seven a.m. and yeah, I have some good stories about that. But, you know, artists just, you know, if you're artistic, like you guys are, it's just not a natural thing. Yeah. It, and it's, I think you're totally right. And sounds like you have the same thing where the the nighttime is when you get to kind of calm down from all the stimuli of the day and be creative and think about things. And I'm 100% the listen to a full album at 1am person. So I feel that. But um, I think... I mean, there's so much we have to go over, but one of my favorite parts about your career and especially what you're doing now is how wholeheartedly you are putting yourself um, and your team behind creating opportunities for diversity and helping give people a hand up that may not have had opportunities beforehand. So I want to hear in your words, and I think especially for our listeners who saw your name on the podcast episode title and excitedly clicked, um, can you tell us how that has come together for you and i'm really curious to know if it was always a conscious thing that you wanted to incorporate into your career or if it was something that came naturally over years of experience where you saw an issue and decided to tackle it. well i have to say that i was very fortunate to work for companies that allowed us to do that it's really hard now in radio because you know people want to blame program directors, but most of the time they have their hands tied. So I was really fortunate in radio to work for companies where we had a lot of autonomy. And the way we looked at it was the fans have no idea if someone's signed or unsigned. So it was about playing great music. So when I was in Atlanta all those years at 99X, I was able to see firsthand how it honestly changed people's lives and changed their careers by having a song on the radio. Sean Mullins um, had a song called, he was a local guy that we played on our local show on Sunday night, but he walked in one day with this song called Lullaby. And back then we could walk into the control room and whoever was on the air say, play this. And we did. And honestly, within 24 hours, he had 10 labels calling him for a record deal. And the song just exploded and it honestly changed his whole life to where he still has a career today. So we were able to see how it honestly changed people's lives. And that to me was so rewarding that I wanted to continue to do that for people because we're even in living in an age now, and you know this, that it's hard for people to take risks. 
It's hard for A&R people to take risks. They work for large corporations. And at the end of the day, you know, they want to see something happening somewhere else. So if we can provide that, it's just, it's amazing to do. So I think I got it from being in radio and seeing really what a, what a difference it made. What was your upbringing like as a child? Was your family uh, a place that embraced risk-taking for you? Did you uh, get a background in that early on in your life? No, I, I'll tell you that um, I was a super shy kid who listened to the radio as my form of entertainment. And I would call DJs, literally call DJs on the weekend, request songs, you know, listen to radio stations that I could pick up, you know, how you could pick up stations in Chicago. And it was really, you know, it was kind of like uh, that was my form of entertainment. So I honestly have no idea how it started. But again, I have to credit the companies that I worked for and the bosses that I worked for that allowed us to do this, you know, and really nurtured the artist thing, especially um, in Atlanta, because that radio station, there were a lot of alternative stations that were tastemakers around the country. There was like K-Rock in LA was one of them. And there were several. And there were a lot of artists that broke out of Atlanta because we championed them. And it was this trickle down effect that it helped the local clubs who booked these artists. It helped the, you know, when we had record stores, it helped the record stores. So it had this amazing trickle down effect. And you know, I often look at that today with, wouldn't that be great if we could do that for female artists today? Because, you know, women aren't getting, women are getting signed, but they're still not really getting played on terrestrial radio. So wouldn't that be great if it would help the whole ecosystem? Yeah. And you've, you've also included so many wonderful artists and writers of color as well, and from all different kinds of backgrounds and personally, even just in the last couple years, and especially this year with everything going on and people stuck at home and having a little bit more time to think on these things, I've seen such, such a big change, especially in the younger up and coming generations um, in Nashville and around the country. There's so many wonderful people um, that are now even co-collaborating. Um, and I think you and what you guys are doing has a really big um, part in that. So thank you for that because it makes it also a lot more fun as a creative. Um, but how did the equal play thing come together? Because you guys launched that, what, last year? And yes. it's been a massive success. Well, one thing that you said a second ago um, about the change that you've seen, one of the things that happened when I first moved here about nine years ago is there was a competitive thing among women because the labels almost made it feel like we have one slot and you were made to feel that you were competing with all these other female creators. So what we tried to do with Next Women of Country at CMT and then with Change the Conversation that I do with Tracy Gershon and Beverly Keel was no, women supporting women is like a win for one is a win for all. So we encouraged women to support each other. And you, you see it on social media all the time now. I mean, we saw what Marin Morris did on the CMAs. So to me, that's been a huge shift. And probably a lot of people don't even realize how many of these females that have made it or have had a little success are paying it forward and, you know, mentoring a lot of new females. But at the end of last year, to answer your question, we were looking at what we were already doing in the space and saying, okay, 
we're trying to get everybody to come together. We were holding these private sessions of 15 people or under, and a lot of people don't know this, but we were getting all these tastemakers together from DSPs and labels and managers and publishers and saying, guys, we're the tastemakers. How can we all come together and work together to change what's happening with the lack of support for females? And then we said, well, let's look and see what we can do better at CMT. And that's where Equal Play came in, where we have control of these video hours. We have videos we play in the morning on CMT. We have this other 24-hour video channel called CMT Music. And subsequently, we just launched another one on Pluto TV. Let's just make them 50-50. Let's make them equal play. And obviously, Viacom was like, that's the right thing to do. Yes, go ahead and do it. So we started that in January, and it's been really successful, and it's given us an opportunity honestly, to even bring back a lot of gold from a lot of, you know, women like Sarah Evans and Martina McBride, who don't get radio airplay anymore, to a lot of the newer female artists that are out there making videos. You have um, obviously seen firsthand the issues that we've got in country music with women, you know, finding equality. Um, Have you experienced anything on the corporate side that would compare? Have you had any personal experiences of discrimination or any stories that you could tell? You know, it's interesting. Um, I worked at this, most people don't stay at one radio station for 17 years, but the station that I worked for in Atlanta, I had been there 17 years. In the final year that I was there, a new company bought us. So the culture changed immediately. And this new company honestly didn't really have a lot of experience in in our format and they didn't understand the brand and what we had built. So I started seeing things changing and not for the better, by the way. And at the end of that year, they decided that they were not going to renew several of us. They weren't going to renew our contracts. And I was called into, I was called into the office. One of the owners wanted to talk to me and the general manager of the radio station was sitting there and so I'm in this room with two men and one of the owners said to me, you know, when people get to be our age, we lose our relevancy. And I sat there thinking that this GM was going to say something. He didn't say a word. So I thought, okay, now, I mean, the writing is on the wall. Obviously this is not a company that I want to work for. So it sort of wrote itself, but I thought, the fact that he actually said that. And so that was one incident. Um, Another weird thing happened to me. I went to New York after that and worked at this one radio station for three years. It was a great station. But when I first got there, they, uh, the general manager wanted other people to interview me. So he set up a round of interviews with people of position there, like the director of sales and, the marketing director and the sales manager. Anyway, so I actually had this, the female director of sales say to me, well, you're from the South. Do you think that you would understand how to run and program a radio station in New York? So that to me was a, such a stereotype, but again, not unusual for a lot of, I, in, in a reverse order, when I came to Nashville, The minute I told people that I was coming from a radio station in New York, it was, you know, it's Nashville. 
I was treated a little bit differently. But then the minute I said, well, I'm from the South, you know, I grew up in Alabama, their whole attitude changed. So it's a very interesting. That's yeah. It reminds me of something that I didn't really put much thought into when I first started coming to Nashville um, that I saw play out slowly over the couple years. So I've I've lived in Nashville permanently three years, traveled between California and Nashville for three or four years before that, started my career in LA at like 14, 15. So even though I'm in my early 20s, it's been quite a journey of some very different spaces within the industry. Um, And I remember when I first was planning to move and started working out here more, um, someone from, from the South in the industry was like, you know what, if you've got any family from the South or any family that are like, in music or anything like that might be good to to let people know so they you know and they were trying to tell me like especially coming from LA and Nashville it would be a little bit like oh these LA people coming exactly <laughs> and y'all gotta exactly. y'all gotta learn and sit down and wait your turn which is totally it you do have to learn the way of doing things in the space you're in I always think you need to know that before you can kind of break the rules a little bit. And it was so true, but it was so funny. I saw it a couple times where um, it wasn't even negative things necessarily. But once I mentioned that I I had family that lived in the South or something like that, people were a lot more like, okay, come on in. Like you're part of the crowd. Um, And I think that's so funny to see on a business side. Well, and the ageism comments as well. I mean, okay, so I'm I'm about to turn 48 years old and you could not pay me to go back and relive my 20s or my 30s. <laughs> I love being this age and I love the way that it feels to have the experience and the wisdom and the confidence and everything that that gives you. And our society is so backwards with how we look at that. Like we really, there, there's you have so much more to offer especially in a situation where you're trying to relate to different parts of society, where you're trying to, you know, you're programming a radio station. I mean, you have so much more to draw from in those situations. And um, I just, it's just. It's interesting. You know, I took, when I was, uh, I took some unconscious bias training one time, a long time ago, and I'm going to do it again, but that did come up and just really interesting perspectives like, you call a plumber to your house and then you go to the door and there's a female at the door and you're like, who are you? So, I mean, we all do it and experience it every day, but the Southern thing is a real, it's a real thing. You know, I experienced that a lot when I was in New York, a lot. Going, going off of what you and Vic were just talking about with the, the ageism thing, um, I'm curious to hear if you have experienced it, especially since you work so hands-on with artists and writers, um, on the flip side, because I know when I was starting out in LA, I'd been there a couple years, and I remember working on a record, and the producer turned to me and was like, how old are you again? And I think I was like 17, and they were like, oh shoot, you're going to be 18 when we release, we can't use the the young card. They said that to it's me. It's unbelievable. And I was like... <laughs> the young... Well, I've never heard of the young card. <laughs> It was such a funny thing because I was like, okay, so you're telling me labels won't sign you if you're past 25 on the high end, but I'm I'm too old at 18, but I'm like too young to sing about the sing- things I want to sing about if I'm like 14, 15. Um, and I'm curious if you've experienced or run into things like that um, when working with artists and their teams and maybe unconscious biases that they have 
maybe even put on themselves. Well, it's interesting because, you know, if I really love something and I've talked to Victoria about this, I'll send it to publishers, you know, and I'll be like, look, here's an artist. I think these songs are great. They've sent me their 10 best songs or whatever. But when I used to send them to A&R people when I was in radio, the first question the A&R person would ask is, how old are they? Because there was such a thing about signing people that were young. And that's why I think it's interesting that, you know, shows like The Voice came along because it was really about just pure talent. But yes, the age thing came up a lot of always asking how old someone was, which is, you know, it's ridiculous, but it exists. So what do you think are the biggest hurdles that you come up against in trying to embrace a more diverse look for this industry? Well, it's interesting because I recently, um, I'm part of this group called Nashville Music Equality. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the group or not, but honestly started um, after the George Floyd incident. And we started doing these really raw panels. And the first one, there's a lot of industry people that you may know that were on there. Candace Watkins, Shannon Sanders, Gina Miller from E1. And they basically just told stories. It was a great conversation. And I think there were about a thousand people on this webinar from Nashville. And people were, their minds were blown because we sit back and we don't have to walk in their shoes and we don't have to hear these stories or experience what people of color experience and just simple things like Shannon Sanders, who's amazing. I met him. He was our former president of the Recording Academy here in Nashville, but he's a very successful producer. And Shannon talked about how when he gets up to go running in the morning, he drives himself to a track where he can run because he can't run in his neighborhood. And some of these stories just, they just stuck with me. And then we did another panel with female, with fans, black fans. And this one girl who went viral, you probably remember her. Her name's Rachel. She talked about going, she's a huge country music fan. She loves Little Big Town and talked about going to see them and, you know, how there's tailgating before a concert. She remembers walking through the tailgate and seeing a Confederate flag. And she said, sometimes I wish I was invisible. And I just, we all just broke down. Like, that haunted me. And just hearing some of these things really, the group is great. We're defining who we are and what we're going to be doing, but we've held a lot of really open and honest panels. And we feel that, honestly, we need to get together again with all the tastemakers because it's really going to take action, as you guys know, action. What does this look like? What can we do? Um, There are so many great, diverse creators out there why can't we sign them to publishing deals? Why can't they be signed to record labels? Why does country have to be different? You know, and I want our format to shine and I'm really concerned about the future of the format as we have been with the lack of women because we're, and I've said this so many times, we're rewriting history. Um, when you look at all the females that are signed and they talk about why they got into this business and it was, you know, whether they were inspired by Shania Twain or Carrie Underwood, it's like, Who's this generation going to be inspired by if there's no one to look up to? So it's it's really disheartening, but I do feel like it's a matter of all of us getting together to push this forward. We just, we have to. And it's, 
everyone from, you know, radio, streaming services, labels, publishing companies, all of us together. Are you seeing a willingness to do that? I actually do. I actually feel like some people are already making a difference. I have to applaud Apple with Apple Radio and all of those new shows that they debuted several months ago. It's incredible. And to me, I think that was, I mean, I hate to say that it was, they weren't taking a risk. They were just honestly mirroring what the rest of the country is doing. So that to me has had a great effect. I believe Spotify is doing the same thing. I'm really proud of Viacom because Viacom has always been about inclusion. And uh, this year, uh, the New York team held this diversity and inclusion week, and they had 99 different panels. And they were, I mean, they're still online, and I'm trying to catch up and watch as many as I can. But there's so many commitments that they've made. You know, they've committed to make 50 movies uh, using amazing filmmakers to bring along and usher in the next generation of women and and all diverse filmmakers. So they're making a commitment. And it really comes through action to see what other people are doing. What can people do who are not in tastemaker positions? What What can fans do? I think that some fans are already doing it by, you know, they follow their favorite artists on social media, but then they talk about them. You know, and I see fans do it all the time, whether they're sharing music or, you know, they're buying, they're, they're on their virtual. Listen, I've bought so many tickets on all these virtual shows. I mean, I can get in there for free, but I want to pay for, I want to pay for it. Um, and they can buy merch and they can just, you know, they can just be vocal, honestly. What about um, creatives and people in the industry? Because Um, I think sometimes it's so easy to say, what can fans do? What can people from the outside do? But a lot of times we can help ourselves in seemingly insignificant ways. I know personally, especially since um, starting this podcast, I've had a lot of uh, male co-writers reach out to me or even have the discussion in a session. um, And I will share a story and they'll say that honestly never crossed my mind. I've never had to deal with that or think about that. And I've had friends text me months later and say like, hey, we had that conversation and I wrote a song about it the next day in another session. Um, And I'm curious as to your take, having all of this information, what creatives, writers, artists, et cetera, can do to help themselves or their peers. Well, one of the things that I thought was really encouraging, um, she is the music started doing these uh, work, you know, these songwriting camps for female creators and a lot of the bigger songwriters, you know, ushered in the newer songwriters and it's that whole paying it forward. And as I mentioned earlier, I think there, you know, what Marin did on the CMAs, I mean, I wouldn't call it brave. She just spoke her truth. We had an incident a few years ago where Karen Fairchild, when we were doing artist of the year, we were celebrating all women that year and she got up and I don't know if you remember this, but instead of getting up, you know, to accept her award, she pulled up her phone and she pulled up the list of next women of country and just started reciting names. We didn't know she was going to do it. There were a lot of those women that we had invited that were on the front row and they just sort of freaked out and it just gives everyone encouragement. So the fact that creators can do that or mentor or whatever, Um, A lot of mentoring is going on right now, and I think what you guys are doing is helping with, certainly helping with this podcast. Um, But I do, I think sometimes it's just even a matter of 
picking up the phone and giving someone some encouragement. I think about the challenges that we face as almost being created by this scarcity mindedness. And money is like that too. It's like if you go through your life thinking scarcity and there's only a little bit and I have to grab it, it's like you miss this opportunity to pay it forward yes and to have that do what it does which turns into this sometimes magical experience and so i like to think of it as you know when you give whether you're giving financially or whether you're giving recognition on the business side or whatever that is it's like you're saying screw you scarcity i don't believe in you there's more to life you know and there's enough for everyone to go around and those things become self-fulfilling prophecies in a way right like they do and uh, don't you get more satisfaction out of that um the self-fulfilling prophecy thing is real I know that there were a couple of years ago where people were talking about, you know, the Grammys were really trying to have more women creators be nominated and, you know, from producer to engineer and a lot of those categories. And so they did a lot of work to, to really fix that and they're continuing to do that. But at the time for Change the Conversation, Tracy Gershon and I were talking and we're like, hey, we're the problem here. Like, can we name 10 female producers in town? No, we can't. So we did a lot of outreach and we got 16 female producers and engineers together. And it was magical because they all got to meet. Half of them didn't know each other. And basically what they said was, look, we don't promote ourselves. We're in a studio all day. So it was a great way to, for them to meet each other and then for us to you know, help give them exposure. We did a panel called um, Women Behind the Board and we actually had Dave Cobb moderate it, but more of that, honestly. It's what you just said, Victoria, more of that for all, you know, creators, female creators and, and diverse creators. How did you and Tracy connect in the first place and where did Change the Conversation come from? It started, um, I had started Next Women of Country in 2013 and then, then about a year later, um, Beverly Keel, who, you know, Beverly used to be the in-house publicist at UMG. And then, you know, she went on to be this amazing professor at MTSU, but she still reps a lot of artists. And, you know, she had written this article in the Tennessean about the lack of women and she got so much backlash. And at the same time, Tracy was managing a female artist and went to several labels and was told, you know, we only have one slot for a female, or I just signed a female, all these ridiculous things. So we were all friends and we all came together collectively with our frustration. And we had like a little get together at Beverly's house and we just randomly invited like 30 people. And that's when it started. You know, it really started organically. But the fact that, you know, listen, our whole <laughs> goal was to never have this conversation again. But we're still having the conversation. (laughs) You know, we're still banging our heads up against the wall having the conversation. And, you know, obviously now with uh, Nashville Music Equality, we really want to, you know, support diversity as well. I mean, there's so much that you guys have done that people from the outside don't 
have any clue about. Um, And for all of our listeners, I want to take a second to highlight just how incredible it is that you guys have held those panels on diversity and speaking face to face with fans about their experiences and artists about their experiences um, in all different veins from all different backgrounds and realizing, hey, we're the problem and then just going out and getting the information and the numbers. Um, and it makes me think of something that we talked about with a previous guest not too long ago about um, respect. When someone gives me basic respect, I'm like so excited. And when you think about that, that shouldn't be the case. It should be expected. But when you function at a loss for so long, the tiniest little bit feels massive and Um, I think we're in a time where people are learning to expect basic respect as the least and then be like, okay, what can we do now? And I think you guys are going far above and beyond the basic rights that you should give to anybody. Thank you. No, I I really appreciate that. And we always feel like that we could be doing more. We joke around about, you know, how many artists ask us to have a coffee and ask us to you know, we all have full-time jobs, so we try to do as much as we can. So, you know, we want to start doing something. We actually did this at CMT last year when, before COVID, we were doing these monthly mentoring sessions and we would invite, you know, whoever wanted to come, we'd have 25 to 30 independent artists that would show up and, and every month we'd bring in some sort of an expert, whether it was, you know, an A&R person or a manager or whatever, and it really helped them. But then they got to also connect and meet. And um, Leanne Phelan, who's a really good friend of mine, started this creative workshop and she's doing it virtually now. So I tell every independent artist I know to be part of it just because outside of the knowledge, they can connect with other, you know, like-minded people. So it's really that whole paying it forward. I know Song Suffragettes has done such an amazing job with what Todd Cassidy has done and Kaylee Shore and so many young artists have gotten publishing deals from Song Suffragette. So there's a lot of people out there that are really have put in a lot of work and are making it happen. What areas have you experienced the most backlash in when it comes to announcing a new initiative or putting together diversity panels, etc.? Um, and and how have you dealt with that personally and also professionally on the larger scale? I think I may have developed a thick skin when I was in radio because, you know, sometimes in radios you have competing radio stations and, you know, there's the radio war, the quote unquote radio wars. But, um, you know, there were some other radio stations. I was on the air and there were a couple of radio stations that didn't like me and their DJs said terrible things about me. And one guy gave my phone number out over the air. So I had to deal with a lot of that. And I just, you know, you have to kind of choose to ignore it, honestly. It's just how, you know, now with social media, how you have trolls that say negative things. And it does get into artist heads and you have to tell them just to ignore that. It's not there. So as far as the backlash is concerned, I think whenever the whole tomato gate thing happened, when, you know, when the radio consultant made those comments, I know that I've been really outspoken, not trashing radio because... I love radio, and I've always said it's really hard for PDs now. They have their hands tied, but I have talked to heads of, you know, people that oversee programming, and Tracy and I have gone and talked to many of them about this issue, and sometimes they say, you know what? Our guys don't think it's a problem. 
they just don't they don't think it's an issue and it's so in that part we feel like you know we're banging our heads up against the wall but I've had people on social media upset because I have talked about terrestrial radio not supporting women when I do think that it's an easy fix and I know that because I was a program director and I know how you can I know how to move the needle and how easy it is to get women female voices in the mix. So yes, there have been a lot of people that have been critical about me and calling me a hack and all this other stuff. And I'm like, whatever, you said your name is anonymous. Tell me who you really are that made that comment. So I just, um, I don't let it bother me because I do feel like I have to be, I have to speak up about it. And obviously I have um, the support of my company, but it is so easy. It's so easy. I'll tell you why it's so easy. And this is what we used to do before it was 50-50 in our video hours. And again, I'm not asking people to go 50-50, but the fact that we're only at sometimes 11% of women is ridiculous. You can put in more golds from women as far as past hits and recurrence. We're not saying play all new women every hour, so it's easy to put more female voices in the mix. It really is because we're training people and I'm sure you've read about this. We are training people not to hear female voices. It's the same with playlists that a playlist, a very popular playlist can have 60 songs and three or four women. The algorithms are going to push the women to the bottom. So, you yeah, know. I know when we spoke previously, Leslie, I know we talked, <laughs> well, about we talked this. a little bit about trying to put some pressure on advertisers to take responsibility for the representation of the radio station playlist that they're supporting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, because I think that um, if we're not going to be able to do it, you know, at the top with program directors or VPs of programming, I think we're going to have to go to the advertisers because if you go to CAA or any of the agencies, they will tell you that women dominate. They really do, especially for sponsorships. And I have to believe that many of these advertisers are advertising on terrestrial radio. And so I'm not sure that they know what the real problem is because sometimes when we get out of our sphere of country, I don't think people really, you know, they, they don't pay attention. Obviously, this issue has been written about everywhere, but I believe if they truly understood what was happening, you know, I think a little pressure would be put on radio or lack thereof. I think that Jennifer Nettles is also very attuned to this. We partnered with her this year for Equal Play, so she'll be our partner with Equal Play, as you know, because she made that bold statement with her beautiful uh, cape on the red carpet at the CMAs, but she's done a lot of research about algorithms. It's, it's unbelievable how well-versed she is on this, but I think we're gonna partner on this. I'm already talking to some people at Viacom about getting in front of the advertising community. I think we have to. I'm so excited about that. I think it's a fantastic approach. Um, and, you know, obviously in this country, money talks like it does in most places. And uh, so 
putting pressure from that angle might be a way to actually get change to to happen because it's been very frustrating so far seeing that people are obviously aware of of the issue and there's a a fairly widespread awareness now i would think with the amount of media coverage it's had but still the needle has moved very little so the stories you know that i hear from female artists and it's not just the ones that aren't signed that are independent it's also the ones that are at a record label and things that they have to go through so it's really, um, it's really hard to hear those stories. So, you know, we're all compelled. Everyone's compelled to want to help. Yeah. Well, and that being said, how has 2020 impacted everything that you're trying to do here? And uh, what has the year done for you? Well, we, um, we have this other franchise called Listen Up. And it's, you know, it's kind of like an artist to watch. So we've decided that the class of 2020 is also going to be the class of 2021 because we weren't able to do as much with them. Um, you know, and our next Women of Country tour got canceled halfway through, so Tanya Tucker's gonna headline again next year, and hopefully there'll be a time when people can go out. But we're doing a lot to try to get artists exposed. Um, we're doing some stuff with Live in the Vineyard in December. We're doing like a holiday special. We're doing as much as we can to get these artists, exposure for these artists, and. Um, we're going to announce the next class of Next Women of Country in January with something really special. So I think you guys will be excited about that. Uh, but I love what some of the artists are doing, though. Like, I think Brandi Carlisle's been amazing. She's been doing a lot of virtual concerts, and she's been able to keep all of her staff and her band employed. It's, it's really admirable. So that's why I will, you know, I'll lay my money down for these shows. Because <laughs> you want to help. I mean, this... Think about all the, the crew people. I mean, it's, it's devastating what's happened. And obviously what's happened to the venues as well. And um, Ram, uh, Ram stepped up big time during the CMT Music Awards. And we awarded three local venues with $25,000 each for Save Our Stages. So, I mean, you know, you can't, do, you can't save everybody, but, you know, taking one little step at a time and doing what you can, because it can be overwhelming. You touched on social media and algorithms, etc., a little bit. Um, but I want to circle back because it makes me very curious um, on two parts. One, algorithms are so vital to our everyday lives. Um, we're on our phones now more than ever. And um, Victoria and I were just talking about uh, a couple weeks ago different algorithms and how they take on bias, not intentionally, but just by what we consume. And I think it's a great thing to point out, like there's such a thing as black Twitter, as LGBT Twitter and Instagram, because it just spits out what it thinks that you will like. And if you don't go out of your way to consume different content, you'll stay in your little bubble. Um, so that, as a side note, is a great thing to do if you're interested in helping and, and learning more about diversity in entertainment. It's a great thing to do. But um, I'm curious as to how you see social media as a part of the industry, what you like about it, don't like about it, how it helps or hurts what you guys are trying to do and how you've incorporated it into your year and moving forward. Well, I love that um, we have this amazing social digital team at CMT. First and foremost, um, Melissa Goldberg. She's so incredible. And she's created all these great digital franchises for artists at every level. So we've been able to help 
you know, brand new acts, not just the superstars. So I love that because we can give exposure, you know, to, to a lot of, uh, to a lot of new artists. So in that respect, I think it's great. I do think that, um, a lot of artists and listen, you guys are artists, you know, it can get in your head and you start the comparing game. So I've seen that it's really affected emotionally uh, and mentally. It has affected a lot of artist friends of mine and Porter's call has been amazing helping a lot of artists, you know, because again, it's, it is the comparing thing. And sometimes it's not just baby acts. It's artists that are selling out, you know, arenas. And I think in that respect, sometimes maybe putting the phone down. I know Brett Eldridge did it for a really long time. He just stepped away for a while. And I think we could probably all do that. I'm sure if my husband's listening, he could say the same thing about me because he thinks I live on Twitter. But uh, even when I'm watching TV, I'm looking at comments on Twitter about what people are saying about the show. So yeah, I think it's honestly, it's it is balance. And I think we all have problems with balance. I know that I do. But it's easy to get addicted to this thing. And people that can't see, I'm talking about your cell phone. I try to use it as a positive thing, though, Victoria. Like, I use my accounts to, you know, talk about other artists, male and female. I really try to do it. I, that's what I use it for mainly it is it's like any tool it's a double-edged sword right so it's we have to take control over how we use it and how much we use it and it's really addictive it's difficult yeah so what does your work-life balance look like personally for you how do you keep an even keel through everything you know what I'm, i'm gonna have to say the silver lining in covid has actually helped me i hate to say that but because before covid I really could find myself being out every night, and it's easy in Nashville. Even though in Nashville everything's early, I'll have to say I I would still be home early. It wasn't like when I was doing radio where, you know, in rock everything was late. But here in Nashville, it's such a social town, and you don't want to say no. You want to go to everyone's showcase. You want to go to everyone's show. So it's really easy to be out every night, but I've found that I actually enjoy, wow, being home at night and not having to... You know, and it wasn't that it was an obligation. It's just this routine that you get in. But I've always had an I've always had an issue with balance. But I think this has actually helped. I don't know how you guys feel. Oh, the same way. Have you started any hobbies? Have you started any? We always ask artists this because we've been doing a lot of virtual calls with artists if they've started any hobbies during quarantine, and everybody has. What, Sarah, have you started a hobby? I haven't because I've just been parenting. That's my hobby. But well, you guys started a podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, well podcast that's true. is our baby. Um, <laughs> the podcast hobby. Yeah, I think I, I've taken up meditating and having a gratitude journal in the morning. Um, yeah, I started at that maybe four or five months ago because I, speaking of technology, just woke up and checked my phone. And it really messed with me. So that has been my favorite hobby so far. Yeah, I love the gratitude journal. I love that. And I do think that's what I want to use uh, social media for, is lifting up, lifting up other people. And I just would rather have the attention. I don't like attention and focus on myself. I'd rather focus on, I think to me that's healthy, healthier to focus on other people and helping other people. And speaking of being out every night and how much of a change this year is, do you yourself suffer from FOMO, fear of missing out? or? Yeah, I think everybody suffers from that. I feel like, though, because I was always always so busy anyway, 
that I didn't, um, I didn't feel like I was missing out. I mean, especially in Nashville, because there is so much going on. I felt like I was at that point where I needed to start saying no to a lot of things so that I wasn't out all the time. But we, I have friends, we joke about the FOMO thing all the time. Not so much anymore, though, again, because we're all working from home and we're on Zoom, and we're on Zoom calls all day. It's so funny. We do talk about COVID hair and because uh, none of us have had a haircut. And we talk about COVID weight. And we... <laughs> it's true. Well, that has kind of been one of the really nice pressure releases of this. Nashville really is... Uh, it's very difficult to know when to say no, who to say no to. You don't want to miss any opportunities. You don't want to miss any wonderful experiences and inspiration and connections, network and all of that stuff. And and so this sort of grand equalizer that COVID has created for us has given us the space to be able to just rest in where we are and not be so worried about missing everything. It's so funny because... A lot of people that I have, industry people that I've talked about, have talked to, have said, we are not going back to the way we were. This has really taught us a lesson. I mean, I'm telling you, I've had so many industry friends say this, that I just can't go back to the way it was. I think work will look different for us as well. I don't think people will regularly go back into an office. So much has changed. It's crazy. I mean, we're already seeing that, you know, now we don't have theatrical releases and movies are now just, you know, being released on streaming services. And I do know that one thing we have in common is what we're all watching and listening to. And I know that that's a big part of our conversation every day is like we talked about, you know, The Queen's Gambit and The Undoing and every other show that we're binging on. And that ties into music as well, because I know as someone who does a lot of sync, I'm getting so many more people I know hitting me up saying, hey, you do sync, right? Can you, Are you willing to jump on a call and teach me about it? Or are you willing to hop in a session? It's awesome. And I think it's opening a new world for people to see, oh, it's not just touring and streaming and releasing. You can also be creative in this other space. And it really is a wide world of possibility. It's the Wild West for sure. Well, there's, there's something that there's a part two of that question you asked me earlier about social media and stuff. You know, TikTok is interesting because there are a lot of artists that are breaking out of TikTok and it's great on one end, but it concerns me on, on another end. I love it for artists that have been out there really working on their craft for a long time. And all of a sudden, maybe they do get noticed on TikTok. And I think that's great. But there are a lot of people, it's become the new A&R source and a lot of people are getting signed from one song on TikTok. And it, that part concerns me because they might not have a fan base. They've never toured. They've never done a lot of things. And I worry that they get signed and a year later might get dropped. So there's a good and bad to what's happening there as well. We've heard that from a lot of people. And it's something that we won't really see for years in the future. We won't really know what's going on, but it's absolutely true. And and back to your comment on not really returning to normal as well. Um, Maggie Rose said it really wonderfully from the creative side. Um, she s- spoke about just how crazy it is to think that they would be on the road 300 days a year. And, you know, you're up from, you know, two or three in the morning to do radio till late at night and fan meet and greets. And she spoke about how they're thinking about how that will 
change going back, fingers crossed, to normal-ish soon. Exactly. Yeah. She's been a great example of somebody, though, that is has really pivoted and used the time with uh, some of the amazing stuff that she's done, the virtual concerts and the people that she's partnered with. And you can really see the artists that have turned this into something really beautiful, and she's definitely one of them. So, Leslie, when you look at your career and all the different aspects of your work, what is it that really gives you joy? Where do you find the most inspiration and joy in what you're doing? I really believe it's what we talked about earlier and in helping the under, I hate to call them the underdog, but they are. And that's, you know, the female artist and diversity. It's, um, we have such a long way to go. We really do that sometimes when you think about it overall, it can be overwhelming, but it's just kind of taking that one step at a time and, and, having those conversations and that's why I love what we're doing with Nashville Music Equality because it all starts with a conversation but I get more satisfaction honestly out of that and and really hopeful in 2021 that we can you know continue that continue that change and bring other people on board and even conversations like this and the exposure on this podcast will help as well it it just will yeah i think we're going to look back at 2020 as a real pivoting point in history in a lot of ways and in a lot of good ways too. I, I believe that. It's created the space in our lives to really think about what matters and to think about what kind of world we want to create moving forward for ourselves. And these conversations are a really big part of that and they're really important conversations to have. So um, thank you for your part in that, Leslie, because you have done incredible work in just bringing this all to the forefront and making sure that people are having a dialogue about it and you know for a long time these issues were happening and they were unrecognized you know so it's just a huge accomplishment to have done what you've done so far no I, pr- I appreciate that you know right before we got on this podcast I looked at uh, Twitter and I, it was really cool I saw Marin Morris posted I guess Marin and Brittany Spencer and Jason Isbell and Amanda Shires all wrote together today and I thought that is so amazing because people are recognizing Brittany's talent and, you know, she's going to have an incredible 2021. So that makes me feel great. Speaking with you and hearing what you're doing and the fact that your greatest joy is helping others succeed, um, it gives me a lot of immense hope, not only for the industry, but especially for the upcoming generations that we won't have to spend the majority of our careers fighting to be seen at the lowest level. Um, And like I said earlier, we're already seeing so much change. And um, I don't really know what to say. I had a little bit of an out-of-body moment while you were speaking just because if you'd have told 15-year-old Sarah that didn't work with one woman in the year she was in LA that she would be having this conversation and doing this and experiencing people in the industry at a very high level fighting for people like me. Um, it would have completely rocked my world and changed the way that I functioned. Um, so I second everything that Victoria said with a thank you. Well, you know that I'm going to say you need to send me what you're doing and send me your music. And I've talked to Victoria. I want Victoria to be a mentor. I mean, you know, let's just keep the conversation going outside of this podcast. 
honestly. And I want to give credit to Jada Watson, you know, with song data. She's guesting on this podcast as well. Yeah, Jada's amazing. And we've been able to do, you know, panels with her as well. But she's keeping track of all of this, which is incredible. She just put out another one where she tracked record labels and, and, you know, their history of signing women. And so Jade is great. At the beginning of the year, we at CMT commissioned research where we went to the fans because no one was ever speaking for the fans saying women don't want to hear women. So we talked to Jada about it, but we went to uh, this one company that does a lot of Coleman insights. They do a lot of radio research and we talked to a thousand fans and guess what? Fans want to hear women on the radio, so. <laughs> but she's she's great, and um, we just talked to her again the other day. But I love love and appreciate the work she's doing. I think that's a perfect place to start our wrap up with our rapid fire questions. What is or who is your favorite creator at the moment? Uh, Victoria will know this, Mickey Guyton, because I think that Mickey has so come into her own. Her songwriting over the last several years is, Victoria, incredible. Seriously incredible. Uh, she's, you know, she's speaking her truth. So it it's one of the most amazing things to experience. So I'm going to say Mickey Guyton. We love Mickey. All right. What about, uh, do you have a favorite trend right now? I do like the trend of um, of people being present, if you know what I mean, of people... It's like you were talking about, you know, with your gratitude journal. I think a lot of people are trying to be more present now. And again, don't want to thank the pandemic, but we might have to. It's important. What about your a trend you wish would stop? We've heard everything from Crocs to bro country to no maskers to whatever. <laughs> The Crocs thing is funny because now you've got Justin Bieber has his own line. Oh, gosh. Luke Combs has his own line of Crocs. He has a Crocs line? I missed that. Yes, he does. Wow. Never been a Crocs fan. (laughs) So uh, maybe that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When was the last time you failed? Oh, I think we all fail every day. I want to say yes to everyone, so I overcommit myself. And then, you know, I don't want to do that because I want to give a thousand percent to every project. So I think I fail on a, I fail every day with something. <laughs> How about advice for the younger you? If you could go back to Leslie at any time in the past and give her some advice, what would you say? Yeah, I've talked about this before. I think um, it goes back to that balance issue and, and not not saying no. And I think... You know, in my 20s, I don't think I ever took a vacation because I was in radio and I was like this overachiever and I didn't want to take a day off and, you know, which is not really healthy. So I think I would say, tell my younger self to, you know, slow down, balance and spend more time with uh, family and friends. It was so great to chat with you, Leslie, and you're a powerhouse. Keep doing it. Keep the faith. Keep holding the torch. We love you for it. And we really appreciate it. Listen, you guys made it so easy. Thank you. To stay up to date on all things The Table on social media, join us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at the handle at sign the table women. Our theme song, Stop You, is written and performed by yours truly, Sarah DeFores, co-written by Taylor Foley and Will McBeth, and produced by Will McBeth. And as always, we'll include links to any creatives, music, television, etc. referenced in this episode in the episode notes. We'll see you next time on 
the, the table. Do what you want, work what you got, say what you think, and don't let them stop you. Stop you, don't let them stop. Stop you, don't let them stop.